Welcome to the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. I'm Brittany Lombas. And I'm James Cohn. And we are recording for hopefully the last time in three separate locations in New Orleans, Louisiana. Mm. Not that this is the last episode of the Swamp Flex podcast, but all of us should be fully vaccinated within two weeks time. So we plan on meeting in person the next time we record together. Woohoo! Oh, I'm excited. I'm Finally excited happening. Too, oh, what, what if it's like super awkward and like we can't look at each other in the face or something? I don't know. I mean, that that's how it was when me and Brandon hung out the last time. Yeah. I was like, I don't know how to be social with like who is this people. stranger? Yeah, who are yeah. these people? We've just lost that uh, animal magnetism we used to have together. You know, we have to like build that back up. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> We're gonna be doing a lot of hanging out in the next couple weeks. <laughs> Direct eye contact. Oh yes. <laughs> Turning up the heat in the room. We're gonna sync our breathing together. Oh yeah. <laughs> just sweat it out. It's gonna be that climax in midsummer where we get all our grief out as a group. <laughs> oh, a lot man. of moaning and rhythm. I feel like I, I have a lot to get out coming out of this pandemic. Mm-hmm. Well, it's actually been a minute since the three of us recorded together, too, because we took a little break from James. He had a lot of like celebrating to do. He had a birthday. He had a WrestleMania somewhere in between there. Whoa. It was intense. Has it just been a nonstop party for the past few weeks? I mean, that week of my birthday, it was like the weekend before I did a lot of going out to eat with family and then wrestlemania happened and then it was my birthday and then that sort of just kind of carried over into the next weekend so it was pretty much like a week of celebrating and then it was like okay i'm 35 <laughs> it's done you know what i, I mean need water and sleep <laughs> right <laughs> so but no it was, it was good man did you find any time to watch movies in there and all that bacchanal yeah yeah I, I actually fit in a good amount of movies. I did catch the new Nick Cage, the Willy's Wonderland. Ooh, I want to see that. It was fun. Nick Cage doesn't say anything the entire movie, but it's still <laughs> really enjoyable. Like, I had a good time with it. He, you know, he's like this silent guy who he's hired to clean out this, like, I don't know, you remember like the Chuck E. Cheese back in the day with the animatronic animals that would sing to you and the job is basically like clean this place up so we can reopen it and then the animals just start attacking him and he just kind of kills them off one by one and he takes breaks to play pinball and drink soda and a bunch of teenagers get killed i don't know it was fine it was like a good mid-tier late stage like nicholas cage like the film just coasts by without him even saying anything, and it's still, like, pretty fun. But I don't know. I, I think if you're a fan of his work, you would definitely enjoy it. Oh, Brandon, I, I thought about you. I watched this movie, Held. Have you heard about this? It's, like, a couple that's, like, going on their, like, anniversary vacation, and they're in this, like, smart home, and then they start being terrorized by the home itself who's basically like acting as like a marriage counselor to try to like repair their their marriage. I don't know. The premise seemed like something that would totally be up your alley. Oh, I'm definitely on the hook for the evil technology aspect of that, but I, I haven't heard of it, no. Well, it wasn't very good. <laughs> it, it's disappointing because like there's parts of it where like the smart home is like dance with your wife. <laughs> and he's like basically trying to force him 
to be the perfect husband. So it's like really, Oh, now you're selling me. Yeah. Really kind of creepy. And, uh, I thought parts of it were like pretty hilarious. It starts to become sort of a more generic thing towards the end, which is kind of a letdown, but it does go places where I wanted it to go, you know, like talking them through sex. I was like, okay, the the smart home has to like talk him, you know, on how to fornicate. And he does that. And, you know, he brings up all these lies and deceptions in their relationship and is kind of kind of acting like the marriage counselor and like enforcing these strict like 1950s sort of gender roles on them, which I thought that was intriguing too. So I'm not hearing a downside here. No, I know. I, um, <laughs> and okay, this is another thing where it's going to, this, this is probably going to draw you in, but it is shot and the dialogue is written as if it's like a lifetime movie. Oh, come on. This sounds great. <laughs> yeah. Again, I think it has problems. It's not, a great movie, but I enjoyed it. Cause like you, Brandon, I enjoyed this kind of thing and there were parts of it. I really, really liked. And yeah, if you get a chance to watch it, I, I think you would enjoy it. You know, I've been putting off watching that movie demon seed for a long time as well. It's kind of like the most famous smart house, like thriller movie. Cause I think the house like sexually assaults the wife. Oh, oh my God. boy. Yeah. And it's like, well, everything about this sounds great, but I don't want to watch that. Uh, so <laughs> I didn't know there was a, smart house like horror movie i think there's a bunch there's there's even one starring peggy bundy that was like a disney channel original it was oh yeah i've seen that smart house but it wasn't like a a scary movie well ultimately i think that's how i felt was like it was a great premise that could have been done much better so i would still like to see some of these other movies to see if they pulled it off because i don't think this one did but you know, if it's your thing, like definitely check it out. That was pretty much it for me. Those are the two that, that stood out. What about you, Brittany? I finally got around to watching uh, Mildred Pierce. Hell yeah. With a, yeah, the Joan Crawford one. So I know Brandon, you were like raving about it uh, a while back. And I only saw like the, the HBO miniseries. I hadn't seen like the, you know, the old, 1945 uh, movie so I finally got around to watching it so good one of the all-time great movie villains her daughter in that oh Vita she's the worst the worst it's like the kid from um the children's hour who like tells the lie with like no remorse (laughs) yeah just like a completely evil little shit you gotta love it oh yeah her daughter is like so horrible and just like watching how like I don't know it's like not really. It is a mother's love, but also just like this obsession with like getting her daughter's approval. <laughs> it's it's like so great to watch because it's so bizarre. Have you ever seen any of like renditions of Mildred Pierce, James? No. What I I mean, I love Joan Crawford, but no, I've never seen any of that. Bring me up to speed. So. The Mildred Pierce movie with Joan Crawford kind of starts off with like a murder and she's being questioned for it. And then it fades back into like the past, like, you know, before the murder. So she splits from her husband and this is like the forties, but probably the movie takes place earlier than the forties. Right, Brandon? 
it must start earlier, like probably like the thirties, like yeah, Great Depression era. Yeah, and she like works her way out of it and becomes like a powerful businesswoman after starting like with rags. Yeah, like her her and her husband split, so she like starts baking pies to make money, and then she ends up like working as a waitress. And she has two daughters. One's like this young girl who's like a tomboy. The other's a little older, and her name's Vita, and she's like just obsessed with like faking being rich if if she was like a modern day teenager she would be like mom don't talk to me unless you have louboutins on you know like that type she's like resentful that her mother has to work for a living but she wants the money yeah she wants the money but she's embarrassed and she like makes fun of her mom so her mom like hides the fact that she's a waitress and like you know doesn't let her daughter see her uniform it's kind of that relationship well, she eventually like opens up her own restaurant when she learns the business from being a waitress. And then she has multiple locations and she kind of builds this like empire for herself. But like nothing is like ever really good enough for Vita. And it kind of gets worse because like her um her younger daughter gets polio and oh. dies. And oh. she becomes even like more obsessed with Vita after that since it's like her only daughter and she just like literally works and this girl like drains her bank accounts and treats her mom like shit and then I don't know I don't want to give away too much but it gets there's like some little sick and twisted things that happen with Vita Ooh, all towards right, sick the and end twisted. yeah I think so it's more haunting than like I don't know I you'll just have to see it it's just it, okay. I think about it all the time <laughs> It's like the best parts of like noir and like 40s melodramas. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's like some of the best like old Hollywood filmmaking with some taboo shit. Oh, yeah. It's wonderful. So, yeah, Mildred Pierce caught up with a classic. And then I watched some garbage. I watched this documentary from 2015 called Finders Keepers. I saw that. Oh, it's so disgusting. <laughs> It's a documentary about this guy who gets in a plane crash. In that plane crash, his dad dies. And he lives, but he gets his leg amputated. But he keeps that leg. So he keeps his amputated leg. It kind of helps him with his grief. And he wants to like make a shrine for his dad that kind of involves his amputated leg. So... He tries to like skin it himself and figure out a way to kind of preserve this leg. And he ends up getting it mummified. And somehow the leg, his mummified leg ends up in a grill that he has in a storage shed. And (laughs) he gets into like, he takes pain pills because of his leg. And he has like issues with pills and alcohol. And he like goes back on like a binging, you know, pills and alcohol. And he like, neglects i guess like paying for his storage shed and it goes up for auction and someone purchases the shed and then when they open up the grill they see the mummified leg well the guy that gets it is like wow this is gonna help me be famous having this leg so he calls himself like the footman or something like that and he tries to like I don't know, make a, like a brand for himself with this mummified leg that he found. 
And then the guy that the leg belongs to finds out that he has the leg and he wants his leg back. And like this mummified amputated leg kind of just takes over the lives of these two men. And they end up like on Judge Mathis to resolve like who the leg should belong to. (laughs) So that's, yeah, that's kind of like the gist of it. And it's super gross because they actually show it like unwrapped. I don't know. Ugh. But yeah, it was an interesting documentary, super trashy, um, which I love. So it, it was good. It was good. So what what did you think about it, Brandon, since you've seen it? I reviewed it like early, early, early on when we started doing the blog. And I cannot tell you that six years later, I have the strongest memory of it. But I remember thinking, you know, it's one of those quirky documentaries like American Movie or Gates of Heaven or something like that, where the, the people are just like total characters like they're like complete weirdos it kind of feels like a, a jerry springer episode that's like just gotten a little more a little better funding than uh just mm-hmm. having people sit on chairs and talk it out but uh i had i had fun watching it i think my my thing with those kind of documentaries is like basically how the film treats its subject if we're supposed to like laugh at them or like have genuine empathy so that's why i'm kind of curious about about this one because like American movie like you do feel empathy for the directors and like Gates of Heaven this sounds like a little more on the like oh look at these freaks kind of deal but I think it could be wrong it depends on how you go into it I mean I didn't really find it to be like wow I didn't not that I didn't feel empathy but it wasn't like uh I didn't cry I didn't really feel too bad I was just like well this is some weird shit um yeah, that was it. When I did, I, <laughs> I mean, did I watch could be a, a lot monster, of Judge Mathis back in the day, so I oh might God. have to watch it just for I that. Mean, from a criminal on the streets to the seat, I mean, <laughs> yeah, he he made it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Brandon, what have uh, you been watching? I got a couple quick, over-the-top genre movies directed by women that came out this year. They're both under 80 minutes, which, you know, beautiful. Great. I wish all movies yeah. could hit that metric. That'd be great for me. One of them I really liked and one of them I did not. I'm going to start with the one I didn't. Um, and usually I don't bring up stuff I don't care about on the show. Usually I don't bring up like smaller movies just to shit on them, you know. But this one caught my eye. It's called Slacks. S-L-A-X-X. Um, it's on Shutter, and it is about a killer pair of blue jeans. Oh my God. It's set at this like mall. It's one of those like american apparel type companies that are like pretending like they're saving the planet and have like good union ethics but are really just trying to market fast fashion just like every other mall brand so the movie's kind of a parody of like eco-conscious like fashion brands and this like blue jeans that are supposed to fit to your body kind of like sisterhood of the traveling pants are cursed by the child laborers that have like died making them cheap like the labor's been outsourced and subcontracted so many times that like it's actually one of the least ethically pr- produced pairs of jeans in the world. Um, and the kids like ghosts possess the jeans. They become sentient and the things like kill people. Like they chop off people's like limbs and hands as if they're like eating them. And then they suck the blood off of the corpses. Um, so it's kind of funny watching these like pants run around in the store and like kill all these teenagers I was at least 
amused by the fact that it's not CGI. Like they did a lot of green screen puppetry. So the jeans kind of have like a tactile look to them um, as they're like hopping around and like knocking people over. And the, anytime the jeans were moving and like doing their like horror movie villain thing, it was like kind of fun. But the humor just doesn't land. Like the comedy in it is very broad, especially this character. They're making fun of like YouTube influencers. Well, first of all, it should be an Instagram influencer, but they're like a YouTuber, which is kind of weird. And they're like live streaming from the jeans premiere and like the jokes just feel so stale. Like they're making fun of like almost eighties Valley girl archetypes and not actual influencer stuff, which has its own very specific. I'm not saying it's not mockable, but the way they were mocking it just felt like completely out of touch with what, what those kids actually do for a living. So I just didn't really vibe with it just because the humor wasn't as solid as it could have been. And the reason I'm really bringing it up is because I was thinking about this watching it in the last two or three years in particular, there have been so many good killer fashion movies. Like our movie of the year last year was a movie about a killer leather jacket (laughs) called Deerskin. And then Mm -hmm. um, in fabric the year before that. And then last year they also had the killer weave movie, bad hair. And I was just thinking about how funny it is that like, the bar has been set so high by killer inanimate object fashion movies in the past couple of years that I could watch this one and be like, you know, it just didn't live up to the the movie, one about the killer dress, you know, <laughs> like it just didn't hit the standard. I wonder like why this has become such like a, a hot thing, like, you know, killer clothing movies. <laughs> I don't have like, an answer for that. Is there something I'm missing? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I will say I'm here for it. Like I get excited every time a new one comes out. And I have seen a lot of people who are really positive on slacks. I I just couldn't, you know, that feeling when like a comedy isn't funny. There's like nothing that can really save it. You know, you watch a horror movie sometimes. And if the acting is bad, um, the kills being inventive or the way it's stylized or like the music can kind of save it. When you watch a comedy and the jokes don't land, there's just really nothing there to do. Like you're just kind of like waiting for the jokes to be over to get back to the pants, killing more people. So if the movie were funnier, I'd probably be a lot lighter on it. I was just kind of laughing about yeah the high standard of killer fashion movies right now. <laughs> where I could be like really snobby about this one not being as good as Deer Skinner and Fabric. And the other one I watched on Hoopla. So this was a free library rental in a roundabout way. And it stars Chloe Grace Moretz. And we had talked about recently, um, and I actually cut it out of the episode because we didn't have anything like constructed to say other than we don't like her. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was mean, but it, yeah. it was kind of true. Yeah, I edited it out, but it's true. Like, I usually don't care for her in movies. I, I don't get what she thinks she's doing and why she gets cast. Like, it never really clicks with me. In this one, though, I watched this movie called Shadow in the Cloud. And the movie is like 100% Chloe Grace Moretz. She's like the only character on the screen for like 90% of it. And it's actually really good, which I did not expect. It's set in World War II and she's like a bomber pilot. And she kind of cons her way onto a all-male like cargo flight. Like it's a bunch of men and she has to prove herself as like being a fellow soldier and like worthy of being on board and she has like a top secret package she has to keep out of their hands and they're really skeptical of her so what they do is they put her in this like gun turret below the plane 
to keep her out of the way in case she's like a spy or like an uh, you know, an enemy undercover or something like that. They're like, we don't know what to do with you. So you're going to, you're going to be under the plane in this gun turret, um, isolated and we'll talk it out with you. And once we trust you, we'll let you up upstairs on board the actual plane part. So most of the movie is like her in this cockpit by herself, listening to the men above board, basically talk shit about her. They like call her a slut and a ditz and like basically sexualize her and, delegitimize her like value as a fellow soldier and like it's like super sexist just chatter with a bunch of like 1940s jocks you know and while she's down there listening to this and kind of like arguing her place you know her rightful place to be there she spots a gremlin on the wings um like straight (laughs) out of fucking twilight zone there's like a bat-like beast that's hanging out on the wings of this plane and she's stuck in this gun turret and can't do anything about it um, and she can't convince them that it's real. She's like, no, there's an actual like monster on board of this ship and we need to stop it. And that's like the first maybe 40 minutes of the movie. And the last 20 minutes is her emerging from that cockpit and just kicking ass. She just completely destroys this uh, gremlin <laughs> that's been like fucking up their flight um, and like proves herself to be like the most courageous person on board. But in this like really over the top action horror way, like. It reminded me of The Box, the Richard Keller movie. You know how that one starts with like a Twilight Zone premise and once that sort of runs its course, it just comes up with a ton more weird ideas after the fact and just adds on more and more shit that the Twilight Zone premise never really covered. This one's doing terror at 20,000 feet or whatever that Twilight Zone episode was. And once that runs its course, then it becomes super weird in a completely different way than Richard Kelly, instead of like having more ideas, it just fully commits to dumb action, just complete unhinged physics defying nonstop Looney Tunes bullshit. Like it it just really like makes no sense. It's really over the top. Um, And Chloe Grace Moretz is like really fun in it. And then after all of that nonstop, like cartoon lunacy, it ends with like this very sincere, here's a salute to all the women who fought in the war, like montage over the end credits, <laughs> like all these like actual like pilots and uh, other soldiers, um, which was a really fun tonal whiplash. Yeah. It sounds like such a mishmash of like a creature feature and feminism and world war two epic and parts of it feel like a radio plague. So it's like all audio, you know, it really is like, just a total mishmash of different influences like you're saying and it's also like 70 something minutes so like it's doing all of those things in like rapid succession cool it's it's really invigorating it's like a fun genre movie you know we're always trying to promote those here i think yeah yeah i i saw it on hoopla and i was surprised to see like a recent film on there too so um yeah probably check that one out sounds pretty cool it will not waste too much of your time. I can at least promise well, good. that. <laughs> <laughs> good. Well, we do have some more over-the-top genre films coming later in this episode, I think. But we will start with something a little more prestigious. We're going to do a Pixar movie, which I don't think we've touched on one of those since Inside Out made James's top 10 list the very first episode of the show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. So we're going to cover a wide range of movies all under a very broad topic, but I think we'll have a lot to say. Yeah. Yep. And all that's coming up to you 
right now. Do toys here get played with every day? All day long, five days a week. But what happens when the kids grow up? Well, now I'll tell you. When the kids get old, new ones come in. When they get old, new ones replace them. You'll never be outgrown or neglected, never abandoned or forgotten. No owners means no heartbreak. As I might have mentioned in last time I was on this podcast, I went through a big Toy Story binge where I watched all three. Well, there's a fourth one that I actually did not watch. I watched the trilogy and the movie we're going to talk about today is the third one in the trilogy. And it got me thinking about sequels that were better than the original film. And that's what we'll talk about today. But I think what really blew me away about Toy Story 3 and why I wanted to talk about it is it is this prestigious film. I mean, it was nominated for Best Picture. It grossed, I think, a billion dollars in the box office like holy in a, shit in a billion dollars oh like my god it's unfathomable how much money this movie made and it it has this like emotional resonance that the other two toy stories kind of build to and i this movie left me in tears i i like was deeply affected by this film and it and again a film that's made that much money that was nominated for best picture I don't know why I hadn't seen it yet. And I looked at like when these movies came out. I think the first Toy Story came out in like 1995. So I think we're all around the same age. So we would have been like nine, ten years old, which is probably the perfect age to see that first Toy Story. And I don't know about you guys. I do remember seeing it in the theaters. Yeah, it was like this cultural moment, you know, this first big computer animated film. And so I remember it being a part of my childhood, but then in a weird way, I sort of dropped off with the second one, which I think would have came out probably when we were about seniors in high school. And the third one came out in, I believe, 2010. So we would have all been in like our mid 20s. And I guess it's just one of those things where like we weren't quite at the right age to stick with it in a way. Because I always had this mindset that like, oh, it's like kids' films. And so I never paid attention to the second or the third one. Even though the movie's like trying to age with you, right? Right. Like, especially this one. Well, and that, so that's why watching these three, and especially this third one, it really connected with me. And like, I wish I would have watched it when I was in my 20s. You know, I think we were a little old, like mid-20s, but we were still like right out of college and, you know, definitely moving on past our childhood into adulthood. And the basic plot of this film is, you know, we're down to kind of the core group of the toys. You know, we got our Woody and Buzz and we got Slinky and the pig and T-Rex and all that, kind of the core group. But they're not really played with anymore because Andy is 17 years old. He's about to go off to college. They're just kind of, you know, stuck in the toy box. They never get played with, but they still have this like loyalty to Andy. But then as he's getting ready for college, his mom tells him, Hey, you know, you got to decide what you want to do with these toys. Do you want to throw them away? You want to put them in the attic? And there's kind of this 
misunderstanding where they're put in a trash bag to go in the attic, but they accidentally get sent out to the garbage. And so the toys do escape from the garbage compactor at that time, but they sort of, you know, feel like Andy has let him down. He doesn't care about him. Woody's the only one that he wants to bring to college. So they decide they're going to go to this daycare, which at first is like a utopia for toys. You know, it's like little kids, different group of kids every year that come in and they get to play with them all day. And at first it's like this heaven for toys. And that quickly turns into something extremely dark. They realize that this like benevolent dictator, essentially Lotso, who kind of runs the daycare, that he is like a fascist dictator and that they have been relegated to be played with by the smallest children who have no respect for the toys. They break them, throw them against the wall, destroy them, basically torture them. And it seems to become apparent that like Lotso is the dictator of this toy prison. So Woody returns to save his friends. And there's this like climactic scene that takes place in a trash compactor. And then there's this big emotional for me, emotional catharsis at the end of the film that really brings everything that each Toy Story has kind of been building to about the loss of childhood and really brings it home in a really touching way that, like I said, kind of left me a quivering mess. And so that's kind of why I wanted to talk about this one because I feel like for something that was this big of a cultural phenomena, I don't know how I missed it. And I wish I would have seen it earlier because I think it's one of the greatest, definitely one of the best Pixar movies I've ever seen. And to me, one of the best animated films, period, I've ever seen. And it definitely is like that sweet spot of kids can still enjoy it, but adults, I think, actually get more out of it. And especially people that would have been about our age. You know, if we would have seen this in college, I think it would have had the same impact on me. It affected me a lot, and I rewatched it again this afternoon, and it still resonated deeply with me. So I'll just open it up to you guys. What did you think of Toy Story 3? So I get where you're coming from, and I kind of like regret that I didn't have that relationship with Toy Story. But I was like five when the first movie came out, and I just remember like I waited for it, I think, to come like VHS, and I think my mom must have like rented it for me. And I was so bored with it that I just didn't get into it. So I never really bothered watching any of it. And I think it's, I just don't like Woody and Buzz. So like when I watched it again, like it wasn't a bad movie. It was good. It just didn't like connect with me, I guess. Cause I, I didn't really care for the other ones. And I still didn't like Woody and Buzz, but I did like some of the newer characters, which I was surprised to like, like I liked Lotso a lot. <laughs> That is a dark villain. I don't know why I vibe with him. I was so surprised to see such like a dark character in a Pixar movie. First of all, I don't want to like rag on Toy Story because like we all know that my opinion is pretty trash. Like my favorite Pixar movie is like A Bug's Life. So I wouldn't trust my taste in Pixar. But yeah, well, anyway, I liked Lotso. Um, And it turns out that like there's this company in New Jersey that makes toys and they made this uh, bear called the Lots of Hug Bear and Lotso (laughs) was the Lots of Huggin' Bear. So they tried to like sue Disney 
because they're like everyone hates our bears now (laughs) (laughs) because you made this asshole character he's a mass murderer (laughs) which like made me like him even more i just i don't know he has such a darkness to him that it's just obviously coming from like pain and i'm just so interested in that he did remind me of you know you read about like you know there's a famous story about like hitler how he just wanted to be an architect or a painter and it didn't work out and you hear that about like a lot of dictators and mass killers that had this kind of really shitty thing happen in their like childhood or like adolescence and everyone likes to play psychologist like that's what created this monster and you definitely get that in toy story 3 there's also just a lot of general like holocaust type imagery throughout the movie which i don't know what they were doing with that i don't know how intentional that makes me feel weird for saying i liked lots bear was he supposed to be hitler kind of oh my god (laughs) that's one thing that i'm glad you brought up brandon because like that's one the one thing that i felt was you could possibly say in poor taste was like the climax of the film is them going into like the incinerator. Oh my God. I won't get too much into it, but there is like a big political allegory in the middle of the film about fascism and maybe a critique of communism, however you want to interpret it. But that ultimate scene of them, you could say being led to like the gas chambers after failing to hide in the attic. Uh, Oh no. Okay, oh, well, that, I think that's a, sh- a little bit of a stretch. Well, once you start looking for it, it's all over it's all the place. Oh, yeah. it is. It is. And I'm realizing it now. And I don't <laughs> like Lots of Bear that much anymore. I <laughs> was thinking, like, I don't know. I looked from it like, oh, like, you know, he's like the bully. But, like, he, like, hurt people hurt other people. Yeah, for sure. And especially his, like, big heavy, his, like, bodyguard baby doll. That's all that baby doll is. It's like a hurt object. Uh, that's easy to manipulate. I mean, I, I kind of understand like not caring for Woody, maybe because that was one thing I, you know, watching the films, it's like I just was screaming at Woody, like, dude, you're so loyal. He's loyal to a fault. He's so loyal to like Andy. He's a cop. Like he's a, he's lawful good. You know, like he he believes in the goodness of you know the kid he's in service of, and he thinks that if you follow the rules um oh, yeah, that yeah. you'll be treated right i forgot he's a sheriff he does have an i, I know y'all didn't watch all three but he <laughs> no, him no. and buzz like have pretty big arcs from where they start to where they end up so it's not like these are like stagnant characters they do evolve over time and buzz is interesting because each movie he kind of has his own little side thing like in the second one he kind of becomes sentient, realizes he's a toy when he sees the other Buzz Lightyears in the store, and he realizes he has like a doppelganger and that he's not special. And then in this one, he's like, his memories are erased, and he's essentially like a tool of the state, you know, like like a Terminator. <laughs> like in each movie, he has his own unique thing. So they definitely, for the major toys, like, give them arcs that I I find interesting. And I do think this one is kind of the perfect end to all these like threads that the movies kind of weave. Well, James, what do you think about the new toys that were introduced in this movie? What I realized was like, okay, yeah, this movie made a billion dollars. I think it also Mm -hmm. costs 
like a hundred million dollars to make. Good God. And you can see it. Like if you watch the first one, the animation's kind of crude. It looks terrible. Yeah. It's aged horribly. It's aged bad. You could tell like they kept everything to a minimum as far as set and action. And in this one, dude, like that, again, that incinerator scene is it's pretty insane. insane. And yeah. like some of just when they get to the daycare and there's so many toys, like I can't imagine how many hours of animation it took to make that happen. That's it's a Gremlins 2 moment. Definitely. Like, <laughs> especially with this one, it like it scales out to become yeah. this huge epic. And I think that's another interesting way the movies mm-hmm. change over time is like the set pieces get bigger. The action gets bigger. There's more toys. And yeah, in that way, it is sort of like a Gremlins 2 where yeah. it's everything dialed up to 100 that's the thought I keep coming back to with all of these movies. Like, you know, broadly we were talking about like sequels that best their original. Mm-hmm. And I'm just trying to think like pinpoint exactly what I want out of a sequel while watching these. And, you know, James was just talking about like movie to movie arcs with characters, which I think is like kind of what most people are looking for in sequels now, especially in a post like MCU Marvel world. Like people want like an interlocking plot that propels itself and like teases for what's going to happen in the next adventure. And, you know, this one does that a little bit. It starts like mid adventure and like playtime where like, uh, they're like attacking like a train robbery, uh, in motion. And there's like aliens involved and stuff. It's like playing along with that idea, even though that scene is kind of a throwaway fantasy, Mm -hmm. but eventually like what really needs to sell it, if it's going to like best the previous films, it has to just do things bigger. Yep. And like, I think that sometimes leads to like some of the best movies ever is like the push to have to like outdo yourself and like be more ridiculous than your predecessor. I think we're kind of losing that in the sort of like Marvel model where it's basically like episodes of a TV show, like a hundred million dollar TV show episode. Uh, It's just like the next adventure in a long line of other adventures that feel exactly the same. Whereas like, these three or four movies we're talking about today, I feel like what we're latching onto is the escalation and like the willingness to blow it up and go bigger. And the thing that really sticks out about this one in particular in that batch is how willing it is to blow up the darkness of the first yeah. one where you have like SIDS from what I remember, like science, like Dr. Frankenstein type experiments on different like hybrid toys that he's making in his like evil lab Like, that's a dark streak and, like, a horror streak for a a children's film. And by the time you get to this one, the bleakness and the villainy is scaled much, much larger where you can make, like, Holocaust references and talking about how evil the villain is and it's not out of line. Well, and, like, what you're talking about in regards to sequel and why I feel like this was my go-to pick was I think it hits all the things you talked about. It's, like, bigger more expensive, more things than the original. It also goes in a much darker, weirder direction as it goes. And then it also does give you that overall thematic movement that again coincides with like a generation of kids that grew up with these characters. And then ultimately the film is about growing up. It has all these like perfect elements to make it an awesome sequel. I do think it's somewhat, 
ironic too, like thinking about the scenes where there are all those new toys at the daycare and it's just like so much visual information. Um, and we get that a little bit with a tea party at like a little girl's house later on. Mm-hmm. Where it's just like all these new toys. Oh, I did like that group of toys a lot. I forgot about them. Pretty bold to include a Totoro in that scene, considering how much better animated every Miyazaki movie is over every Pixar film. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, yeah. But, you know, thinking about those scenes and like why that's exciting, it kind of pinpointed something that bothers me about Pixar and about like computer animation in general is like, the scenes where it's just Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head on the screen or it's just Woody and Buzz interacting and it's just two characters, it's not well animated. Like even this slicker updated 2010 version is so lazy looking to me where there's just like not a lot of visual animation on the screen. You have like basically two colorful orbs (laughs) with like not a lot of texture or detail just sort of taking up 90% of the screen and it just looks, I don't know, bland at, at best. But I think that also goes to the fact that they are toys. Like they have that plastic fake look to the end. I mean, that's a smart way to cut corners, but that doesn't make it impressive. Well, it is toy story. I mean, it's not like little miniature people story. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they're supposed to be toy. And to me, what was, I, I do get your point. I think what, was kind of took me aback was like, especially at the end when they're, they're going into the fire and they look at each other. And again, there's not like really tears welling up and they're not really showing a grimace or any real emotion. They just kind of look at each other and they hold hands, but that's like, was like this universal connection with me. And same thing at the end when like Woody looks at Andy as he goes away, it's, you know, He's not like emoting in his face. He's not crying. He still looks like a blank toy. And yet somehow that resonates. At least it did with me where I was like crying at at that, even though there was no of that like visual information you would normally get on a human's face. And to me, that just says like the themes were so universal and the characters were built up well over time. So I don't know, like I, I do get your point, but I think that is ultimately maybe by design. Yeah, it's by design, but it's like a, it's a choice that becomes like apparent when you watch the first one again and you see what Sid looks like when they actually do try to animate a human and it's like, well, that looks wrong. Like that's not right. So it's like, yeah, they chose to tell the story about toys because the toys are easier to animate than like yeah, a human's face. It's kind of like. I don't know. I want to call it like a lack of ambition, but that's rude to say about a company that basically pioneered an industry that has like taken over animation to the point where you don't get hand-drawn, complicated, intricate animation outside of what Japan at this point, like that whole industry has been taken over by this. But Pixar did do like up and Coco and some other films that I think are a better idea of what you can do with, computer animation as far as like emoting you know what i mean and i'm never really that impressed by it (laughs) like even in movies where you know like moana or uh brave or coco where they're like yeah they really like reinvented the way we animate water it looks like real water now or you know human hair is like so complicated and um, defined in this film and i'm like looking at the stuff and i'm just like eh. 
it just doesn't do anything for me visually, which I, I'm basically laying all that out just to say that like, I am impressed with this film for going there, especially in how dark it's willing to be. And like that scene where they all accept death as a community is like really fucked up, but like I'll never be able to get that chip off my shoulder. I can't cross that threshold where it's like, like if this was hand-drawn animation, um, I would probably be in love with it, but it's like, I have a personal bias that I'm like, I'm having a hard time getting over that hurdle. I mean, I, I think that that's really a shame on it. Yeah, it sucks. Because like, <laughs> again, like, these themes, like this story is a universal story. It is childhood ending. And like in the beginning, little kid problems are like little problems, you know, and as you get older, you have to worry about these big problems. And, you know, these characters by this third movie are dealing with like big problems. And they themselves are like, they're toys. Like they're, I guess they'll live on forever. But just that idea of like your childhood is over time to put the toys away and go to college and forget that you were ever a kid. And like, that is a universal thing that like, I think every single human being on this planet can identify with. And that's like powerful stuff. Like a good, like self-reflective moment because I still have all my toys in a toy box (laughs) and I don't want to get rid of them. And then I'm like, Oh my God. Well, I guess like you can still go to college and keep all your toys but i'm like am i like not mature enough i don't know i kind of sat there after watching all that and i'm like should i bring mine to like the sunny side on the bayou wherever that is or i don't know i'm probably not going to i need to make an animated movie about all the sex toys i've bought since college (laughs) (laughs) that represents the next stage of my life the other woody (laughs) and buzz yeah there you go Buzz, <laughs> battery-operated buzzing. <laughs> That's. I will say I did. Great. I did get emotional in the final farewell, where there's like a passing of the torch between Andy and his neighbor. Yeah, um, that I thought was that was sweet. like that was so sweet and so poignant in like addressing the the themes of like moving on and like just because someone out is how grown you doesn't mean you need to like force that relationship anymore. You can find new meaningful relationships with new people yeah. and like your community matters more and like sticking together than like chasing after one person and like leaving all that behind that, that scene like really tied all that stuff together for me, even more so than the furnace. Like the furnace is fucked up and you're like, wow, I can't believe they really went there. But I was more like impressed by that than I was emotionally affected by it. Yeah, no, I, I wasn't emotionally affected by the, furnace scene to me that was more of a like i was actually on the edge of my seat and thought for a second like oh my god these toys are actually gonna get burned alive yeah it was thrilling you know and then the the aliens come with the claw which is like a recurring thing and it's you know the heavens open up and they're saved and then they get this new home so it's kind of this roller coaster in that last half hour where it's like super dark and then there's the light and then you realize like they go to a new home they found their community. And like you, Brandon, like I thought about my own college experience and, you know, I wanted a big thing for me first year of college was like, I got to stay close to like my high school friends. Like that's, that's my people. Like I can't leave them behind. And, you know, as the years went on, those people kind of go away and, you know, you miss them and you've found new people, you know, and you move on with your life. And that's part of the hard part of like growing up that we all have to deal with. So 
yeah, I, I feel like that's a pretty universal thing, but I'm not a total monster that, that did cut through uh, my biases. And I, I do think this is like probably a better movie than I'll ever give it credit for because I have like hangups about what Pixar has done to the industry. Like they, they're like automatically cited as like the best in animation today. Every time they make a movie, they get like automatic like Oscar nominations and like accolades and like all the money. And yeah, I have a, like a I have a little resentment on my shoulder for, from that. I can't I can't get past it totally. I, I think this deserves all the accolades it gets. This one specifically. We just show these movies, madam. We don't make them. Any conversation about great sequels has to include Gremlins 2, The New Batch. It's a 1990 film, sequel to the, you know, film from 1984. And this film is a really interesting backstory. You know, Joe Dante directed the original, and for years they were trying to get a sequel going. And, you know, they had different scripts. They were trying to get different directors. They couldn't find anyone. Joe Dante didn't really want to do it. And then they finally just said, hey, we'll give you a huge budget, complete creative (laughs) control, do whatever the hell you want. We just want a second Gremlins. So with that being said, Gremlins 2 is a perfect example of what we were talking about earlier, where it takes whatever the original Gremlins was, and just, it's on acid. And, you know, there's a famous uh, Key and Peele sketch, you know, they're in the, the creative the writing meeting, and, uh, you know, everyone's just coming up with their Gremlin, you know, the Lightning Gremlin, and the Lady Gremlin, and you know, we're going to have Hulk Hogan in there. And they're just like, yes, we want all of that. <laughs> this film is, like, insane. It has every kind of gremlin you could probably think of. And it's like disgusting. It's also like a very interesting meta commentary on sequels themselves, which why I think this is a good one to start off with. If we're going to talk about sequels that are better than the original, because this film is basically mocking the idea of a sequel. Well, it's like mocking a lot of things <laughs> a lot <laughs> like, of yeah it, it's mocking like the 80s like the like the reagan era like consumerism oh, yeah. of everything but it's also mocking sequels like you're saying and it's mocking also the people who did not like the first gremlins that's the part that like really sticks out to me right there, there's this great scene with leonard malton where he's like reviewing the first gremlin film and he talks about you know it wasn't that good and then he gets attacked by these gremlins and there's another really funny scene where the main protagonist is trying to explain to security about the rules about gremlins how you can't feed them at night and well what if it's midnight in tokyo right and what if it changes time zones and which is totally to me sort of poking fun at the idea like that there has to be rules at all. Well, I feel like it's like making fun of the reaction to the first movie. Like it's making fun of like people who would have been 
making like snarky asshole comments about like how silly the rules yeah. were. The kind of people would make YouTube videos about plot holes yeah. if, this, if that movie had come out in the 2010s. But also knowing that Joe Dante did not actually want to make this movie originally, <laughs> it also seems to him to be saying, yeah, I know this is ridiculous, but instead of it being, I did not rewatch the first Gremlins, but what I remember is it was this very like kind of grounded sort of family horror. I, I don't want to say that it was like, dull like i thought it was pretty good from what i remember but this one is so obviously like the more enjoyable of the two films at least from my memory i mean i totally agree i think this is one of the greatest movies ever made to be honest <laughs> regardless of uh <laughs> how it relates to the first gremlins well, film. And the, so the setup is really good where you know i think his name is like mr wing you know the caretaker of gizmo he passes away and his like emporium is demolished and there's like you said a lot of commentaries about like gentrification and corporatism wall street and all this stuff but anyway like gizmo runs away after the emporium is demolished and just somehow ends up in the same building as our protagonist from the first film who's now moved to new york to work for this huge i guess it's like trump yeah like this trumpian sort of character as this huge building that building is wild it's like it's like a office building and like a mall and there's like a dance yeah. a dance club and it's open like 24 7 it, <laughs> yeah. it also has like biological research going on it's also a smart building like in a uh, demon seed and hell yes it's uh. crazy <laughs> it's everything and i think the film works too because it you put all this crazy shit into one location and then you get a uh, gizmo in there. And of course he gets hit by water accidentally spouts off all these other gremlins. And because there's the bio research center, they're drinking spider serums and turning into giant <laughs> spiders or they're turning into bats that get poured into concrete and turn into gargoyles and <laughs> or greta hot sluts hot greta yeah <laughs> you get greta you get like, fruit gremlins which are disgusting and weird uh, i don't know who thought of that idea so gross so it just it's a playground for all you know especially for the makeup special effects team to really just like have fun and it, it just kind of hey whatever you can think of just do it and um it, it feels much bigger than the original, but it's still contained all in this one space, which makes it feel like it's really gone off the rails. Like it's a total wild movie. Yeah, it's way more on like the comedy side than like the first Gremlins. Like the first Gremlins was like pretty terrifying at some parts, right? Or is that just me? That no, that's what I remember. It's like more of a horror movie. More of a film. horror movie. I, I don't know. I just always remember like seeking this one out and because it was just fun it, it felt like you're watching like a cartoon which also uh, speaking of cartoons the very bizarre looney tunes intro and the like looney tune characters like that come at the beginning and the end like out of nowhere i always thought of this as live action looney yeah tunes. yeah it feels uh, like and then it. like I completely forgot that they were actually in the movie until this rewatch. It's like, it feels out of place because it's Looney Tunes, but then it also feels so right. Cause it's like priming you for like 
the live action Looney Tunes show you're about to see. <laughs> yeah, and we actually did not like Joe Dante's live action Looney Tunes movie when we watched it. Uh, you and me, Brittany. Oh, um, <laughs> oh God. When he actually made one, we did not enjoy no. that. No, I mean, this was probably as good as it would get. Yeah, it's it's a super fun movie that's like, to be honest, has like really no plot and it doesn't matter. But, yeah, but lots of lovable gremlin characters for us to hold in our hearts. Yeah, it's like kind of like sketches. Yeah. Essentially and especially like all the Rambo stuff. So funny. Yeah, I mo- I mostly saw it as like cultural commentary more than like a story. It's basically just an excuse for Joe Dante to collect everything he loves and everything he hates passionately all in one spot. Even the Rambo thing I think is a joke at Rambo's expense. Like it's kind of a joke about like pop culture like brain rot. How like watching 30 seconds of Rambo corrupts Gizmo's little brain and turns him into like a little hedonistic violent little mini Rambo. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, he also had like a similar arc to Rambo though, where he was like in the beginning of this film, like Gizmo is just tortured incessantly. Yeah. In the same way that like Rambo, you know, oh. has PTSD from going to <laughs> Vietnam and then he like kind of breaks out of it and then he becomes this like violent badass. Just like Gizmo. So I saw that too as like kind of basically telling the same story as Rambo, but on a Gizmo level. And Rambo's like contemporary to that time. You know, they were still making Rambo movies in earnest in, around 1990. But then you have like the horror host, the guy who's playing like yeah. the Dracula version of Morgus. He... um is like from an older time that Joe Dante would have grown up watching movies in that context. And uh, the, the movie's kind of like lamenting the loss of that. And even though uh, Clamp is playing like a Donald Trump kind of parody, uh, he's also a little bit of Ted Turner because like one of the things he yes. loves to do is to update older movies with color and happy endings. Okay, <laughs> wait, that I just have to say that I think, I think the actor's name is John Glover who plays Daniel Clamp. He is probably my favorite human performance in this film. Like his energy is like kind of like a like a golden retriever, but a big old asshole. He, he's a big asshole, but he's like I, I thought it, he was hilarious, and he's like very earnest, like and very enthusiastic about everything. And like I found that infectious. He's like a oh well, that's swell tight. Yeah, I, and actually, I think I started off saying that. Him and his corporation was like Trump. And I think Brandon's actually more accurate. It is more of like a Ted Turner, like kind of a Southern charmer that's just very enthusiastic. Mm. Anytime he was on screen, I thought it was a hoot. But yeah, I I just, I like the movie as commentary on contemporary things like that. One of my favorite one-off gags, like the, the lasting legacy of the first Gremlins movie is it basically necessitated the invention of the PG 13 rating. Cause that movie was PG and parents were like really upset that their kids <laughs> were approved to watch this, like, uh, you know, gory little like horror comedy. So there's a scene where Paul Bartel, another like Roger Corman staple, just like Joe Dante is playing an usher at a movie theater. And, um, <laughs> This angry parent storms out of a screening of Gremlins 2 while it's happening. And she goes up to uh, Paul Bartel and she's like, this is just as bad as the first one. Or this is worse than the first one. And uh, Paul Bartel's like, man, we just show the movies. We don't make them. Uh, (laughs) So he's like, 
kind of like spoofing um, outraged parents who are like thinking that their kids need to be sheltered from this like filth by making something even more ridiculous and filthy. I think the gremlins in that scene too, like derail the screening by replacing yeah. it with like a nudie cutie footage. It's like this really kind of wholesome version of like softcore pornography from the sixties. That, that was one of my favorite gags was the actual like real breaking down. And then Hulk Hogan gets involved and tells those gremlins <laughs> to put the movie back on. And then we jump back in to the film. Like, I don't know. That just tickled me to no end. And it's, it's just pure Joe Dante, that kind of like all out chaos. Like I think his first movie he directed, it's never been officially released on home video because it's all copyright infringement, but he made this like eight hour montage film called the great movie orgy or the movie orgy or something like that. Um, And this is in the sixties and it's just stitched together ephemera from all different kinds of popular culture, like all different kinds of movies, just like using little snippets of it and remixing them into this just mind melting, like experience that you're supposed to like, I don't know, drop acid or smoke a bunch of weed and watch in the sixties with all your like burnout friends. And this feels like that, but the eighties, I know it's a 1990 movie, but it feels like the eighties version of that where it's the great movie orgy, but on eighties cocaine, um, supply just like rapid fire commentary and um, stitching together all these different influences from all across pop culture. It's a blast. It's, it's just really fun and it's, it's pure escalation. If we're going to talk about these movies having to escalate their predecessors, this one is just that there's nothing else watching it again. I think the only thing that stood out to me on a critical level was like, it does start to feel long. And maybe that's by design. Like, I think the movie's like an hour and 45 minutes or something. I didn't realize it was that long. I started to realize, like, I can feel when a movie's like at an hour and a half. And then I looked and there was like still 20 minutes left. And it like kept going and going and going. And on the one hand, it's like, I want to say like, oh, you could have edited that down to an hour and a half. On the other hand, like the exhaustion of the like constant (laughs) media, like overexposure to media and violence and pop culture references. Like maybe that was by design. It's like eating too much Halloween candy the night of. Yeah. That's what it felt like towards like the later (laughs) middle part of the movie. I was just like, I don't know. I need a, need a break. I just thought it was so fun. Like watching all these like different, types of gremlins and all these different little little characters that have like five seconds of time like that's like what i love so much about this movie and like i kind of i guess it goes by quickly for me because like there's so much of that and i just stay excited the whole time i guess (laughs) like there's never a slump yeah but if it would have went on for two and a half hours i I think even you would have to i don't maybe not maybe you want a three hour gremlins cut I just like when like watching this again, I kept thinking like, oh, my God, like what's the next kind of gremlin that's going to pop up? You know, there's all kinds. And the gremlin that I wanted to see that like never comes up that I would wait two hours for would be like a Godzilla sized gremlin. Like just a a big, big old (laughs) gremlin. And I guess like, you know, the spider leg gremlins kind of 
as close to that as I could get. Do you remember the end of Ghoulies 2 where they uh, have to summon a big ghoulie to eat <gasps> yes. all the little ghoulies? Oh, God. Where is that big old gremlin? <laughs> that is pure cinema. <laughs> Bring that big boy out of the, out of the uh, Hudson River. <laughs> well, Brittany, uh, what did you make us watch for this episode? What's your superior sequel? Kind of similar to Gremlins in a way. I thought about it. And I'm like, what's like a sequel that I always like... I don't know how to say it. It's not like the first one's bad. The first one's fabulous. But like, I always want to watch the sequel more. And that is Problem Child 2 from 1991. And like Gremlins, the the writer of this movie, um, Scott, well, one of the writers, Scott Alexander, um, he was one of the writers on the first Problem Child movie, which is just straight up Problem Child. Also one of Martin Scorsese's favorite movies. FYI. <laughs> the first problem child like kind of got shit on and people didn't like it. They thought it was like just made in poor taste. And he was like, well, oh yeah, oh, I'm going to make a fucking gross sequel. <laughs> like I'm going to make just like a sequel to this movie that's made in very bad taste just to show you. And he did. This movie is so great. I find it to be hilarious. I laugh throughout the whole movie out loud. Also, it's disgusting in, like, a really cool way. There's, you know, the town that it takes place in is called Mortville, which is an obvious nod to, like, John Waters' is like most disgusting town ever created. <laughs> it's definitely John Waters for kids, right? Yeah, yes. It's There's lots of farting, and there's, you know, piles of dog shit. There's roaches. There's a, a scene where everyone projectile vomits on each other for, like, ten minutes. That was my favorite scene in the whole movie. Yeah, agreed. It's so disgusting. I, lo I lost my breath laughing at that puke gag. <laughs> it just did not end. It's so good. Problem Child is, I guess it's a trilogy, but the first two movies have the same you know, cast. But basically, Junior is this kind of child from hell. He's just really bad. But like, I don't know, like watching this movie as an adult, I kind of like, he's not that horrible of a kid. He's just does like horrible shit and pranks to like bad people for the most part. <laughs> I I hated this kid. He's horrible. I kind of like him now that I'm like an adult and I'm like, yeah, junior, like those people suck. Blow them up. Put dynamite in the toilet at school. I don't care. That's such a little kid sensibility too to like want to feel superior to phonies. Like, his whole deal is that he thinks adults are, like, phony creeps and wants to get one up on them all the time. And I feel like that that's, like, a very specific to, like, growing up as you, you feel... You like to feel superior to, like, adults who are acting like phonies. Right. And all the adults in here are phonies. Except for his dad. But he also is, like, has this weird sort of, like, Oedipus... I don't know what you'd call it. Like, an Oedipus complex, but with his father we're like he doesn't <laughs> want his dad to leave him like no daddy you can't go on dates like what the guy's a creep he's also a little misogynist he hates women he calls all women bitches <laughs> like yeah. what's the god but i think like he he's like also like a kid where i don't i don't know if you've watched the first one but like like literally everyone kind of gave up on him and kept like returning him and i don't know like i guess he has like a problem like trusting like adults since they've like pretty much abandoned him all his life and i think like now that he has like a dad 
that he like just didn't want to let that go and he was like kind of scared of like sharing his dad with someone yeah it's just you never really see that dynamic you know usually it's like a son whose mom starts dating another guy and they don't like him they don't like their new stepdad or vice versa but you rarely ever see a son who doesn't want his dad to like date another woman I don't know. There's some weird like psychology going on with this kid and his <laughs> dad. And same thing with Trixie and her mom. Like Love the same Trixie. thing flipped. I yeah, she to me was like much more likable than than Junior was. Oh my god. Oh, I I don't know about that. I what? liked them both. No, Trixie was the best. Likable, yes, but as far as just entertainment value, she has like a very standard little rascals type line delivery where every line shouted, I'm going to tell you what's going on here. And she squints her face with like a, I I wish you could see my face right now. Like, but you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) She's doing classic, like little rascals, like 1930s acting. I like it. I like that kind of stuff. It's cute. But I think junior is doing something way more specific to just him. The dubbed, ADR line reads he does in both movies makes me laugh every single time he talks. <laughs> it never got old. Every time he's like, nice night to be born, huh? Or he's like, uh, I guess my birth wasn't considered a blessed event. Just like insane line <laughs> readings. Just like him. <laughs> it's so funny every single time he talks. I never get over it. <laughs> So just a quick like run through of like the plot of this movie. So I didn't talk about it. The movie starts with like Ben Healy and his son Junior. So Ben Healy, played by John Ritter, kind of like a very classic, like, you know, suburban dad type character. They are kind of starting a new life in a new town, Mortville. And they kind of like move into this house on their own. And it's like, whoa, like dad and son boy's house and all the women in the town of mortville are super horny for ben they like literally like flock to his front yard with like pies and casseroles and stuff like that and i don't know like i guess like like you were saying earlier like junior is going through like his dad like dating and stuff like that which he doesn't he doesn't want to not have time with his dad or anytime his dad like spends time on these dates he's like well Fuck that. Like, he should spend time with me. I'm going to ruin it. And all the while, Junior is starting school in this new town. And this school is, like, the most, like, late 80s, early 90s school I've ever seen in my life. Like, primary colors everywhere. Gilbert Godfrey is the principal. And he has a desk that are just, just like, straight up made of pencils. I'm obsessed with the pencil desk in this movie. He, um plays Mr. Peabody, who was also in the first movie. He was um, working at the orphanage that Junior was at. So when he kind of sees Junior, he does his, like, Gilbert Godfrey scream. That's so iconic. And after, like, Junior kind of, like, farts in his office, which is one of my favorite scenes, when he's like, if I was a figment of your imagination, could I do this? He's automatically like, you know what? I don't want him in the school. So he, like, promotes him from the third grade to the sixth grade. And he kind of is like the dorky little young kid in this class and he terrorizes the class. Obviously he like torments this like 
kid who's been in the sixth grade for a million years named Murph, who's so disgusting. I think Murph is a parody of Bart Simpson. Like oh in real life, God. Bart Simpson would look and act like just like Murph. Murph. Just something to think about. So yeah, so his dad comes to pick him up from school and... I think like Murph throws like a satellite dish to try to hit Junior, but ends up hitting his dad. And his dad goes to um, the like nurse's office, the school where he meets Annie. And Annie is played by the same woman that like played his wife in the first movie. <laughs> they decided to just like reuse that blew her. my mind. Yeah, it's so funny. And also, John Ritter married her in the late nineties. Um, so they fell in love on the set of Problem Child. And I guess it just took them a long time to, you know, get married. And that's interesting, too, because, like, when I was a kid, I never made that connection. She looks completely different. Like, she's basically Peg Bundy in the first movie. Yeah. And in the second one, she's, like, this hot librarian is how I would describe her wardrobe. Yes. Although, like, I love her character in the first movie. She's. Oh, she's great. The best. So Ben kind of falls in love with her and it turns out that like the nurse Annie's daughter is this girl named Trixie who is like literally the female version of Junior. So interesting thing about Trixie, the woman who played her like Ivian Schwan, she was like a figure skater and there's a scene in the beginning uh, when they're rolling into town and she's rollerblading and Junior pops a balloon that she's holding and like she's rollerblading and she's like very, I don't know, like it looks like she's ice skating <laughs> when she's doing it. And that's because she's like a really good ice skater. I thought that was kind of cool. But anyway, so like Junior and Trixie kind of are competing with each other for a while. They have like a prank war that goes on. And all the while, while that's happening, this woman in town this fabulous woman named Lawanda uh, Dumore <laughs> is like this super rich, like Southern. She reminds me of uh, Bette Midler's uh, mean character in Big Business. <laughs> but she's just this like ridiculously like rich, over the top woman who like is obsessed with Ben Healy. And she like kind of breaks into their house, redecorates it, and is like, hi, let me introduce myself. I'm going to marry you. So she, like, wants to marry him so bad, and, like, Junior hates her. And all while this is happening, like, Ben's dad, Big Ben, this, like, mean old man with a dog that shits a lot, moves in with his son and Junior. So, like, Junior's, like, ultra pissed because, like, this grandpa that he hates is living with them. And shares a room with him. Plus, like, this woman named Lawanda, who's horrific, like, also moves in. So he's, like, losing his mind. There's this great scene where he tries to, like, sabotage a dinner that Lawanda makes. And he puts, like, cockroaches in the salad. And that's also another disgusting scene where, like, cockroaches just start crawling all over. And they're smashing them. And it's a glass top table. And you just see smeared, like, smush cockroaches in this salad. Just a great scene. But yeah, so essentially like Ben is falling for Annie also on the road to get married to Lawanda. Uh, Junior and Trixie eventually kind of like mend their little, you know, fight they've been having with each other. And they really like want their parents to get married, which is kind of like a sweet, they kind of like have like a little sweet ending. 
And the ending is topped off by the biggest pile of dog shit you've ever seen in your life. Yeah, from that, like, dog food they keep feeding Nippy. I don't know. I just, I find this movie to be, like, super funny. It's super cheesy. There's so many, like, little exciting things. Like, I mean, God, it would take me hours to, like, talk about all of it. But, like, the, you know, Junior pissing in the lemonade. The psycho guy next door with, like, the Hawaiian shirt that Junior blows up. Bad to the bone that riff playing all the time. It's like, Oh, we have to talk about that. Junior's theme song. Okay. So I watched both of these movies back to back and it is Junior's theme song in the first film. Like that song plays at least twice <laughs> for like a, an extended period of time in the first movie. In the second one, they never play the song. They only play snippets of the riff that are like chopped up and re-edited. So you just hear, and then that's it. Don't, don't, don't. And that's it. It just cuts off. Right. It's so weird. And it happens a lot. Like every few beats, uh, every joke is like punctuated. <laughs> Maybe they had more money to use it or something. This movie too, by the way, like it was way more disgusting originally and it got like an R rating. So they had to cut scenes out to make it PG-13. <laughs> I am dying to get my hands on those deleted gross scenes that made it rated R. I mean, even as is, they have like a sex tape party where like Junior, you know, projects his like babysitter having sex for the neighborhood, which is pretty crazy it's for a kid's movie. Very bizarre. Yeah. And that whole scene with like her like eating and like watching pigs roll around and slop. Like it was strangely sexual the way she was doing it. <laughs> uh, but yeah. So okay, what is y'all relationship with the problem child movies? Do you like them? Did y'all watch them growing up? I vaguely remembered them existing. Like, I, I get them mixed up with the pest a lot in my head. Oh, wow. So I don't have very specific memories of them. So <laughs> I, I actually watched both of these back to back in a single sitting for this conversation. And I got to say, I don't think the second one is better than the first one. The first one's way funnier to me. Just like the first one, just like every joke had me actually laughing out loud. Something I really appreciated about the first one, too, is, like, it's a collection of, like, horror movie tropes. Like, there's a, a Shining reference where John Ritter says, like, here's daddy in the uh, hole in a door. Yeah. Well, you also have the Shining twins in the second one, too. That's true. FYI. In the first one, uh, John Ritter's reading The Exorcist for parenting tips. <laughs> and uh, Junior has a pen pal relationship with a serial killer called the Bowtie Killer, played by Michael Richardson. But I will say the second one, it is an escalation of the grossness. Yeah. Like the piss, shit, <laughs> puke, sex of it is Roaches. Like, really over the top. Every disgusting thing you can think of. And it's like, of course, like, you know, kids eat that shit up. Like, oh, I remember yeah. like almost throwing up. I was laughing so hard whenever um, Nippy eats that dog food for the first time. And just, like, shits a pile that's, like, 10 feet high of dog poo. <laughs> I don't know. And I still think it's funny. But I just remember, like, when, that's I, comedy. when I was, <laughs> like, little, I thought it was, like, the best thing in the world. And I would rewind it. I would, like, make everyone come in the living room to see it. And I'll also say the second one has a clearer sense of, like, art direction. Like, you were saying the the school is very, like, production design conscious with the primary colors all the costuming is like that as well like everyone wears these like very vibrant colorful outfits and the um wealthy woman who 
is desperate to marry John Ritter's character <laughs> also has like an art fetish. Yeah. Like there's Keith Haring and like Lichtenstein <laughs> and Warhol, like pop art everywhere all over the film. So I appreciated that it had like a, an artistic like visual sense that the first one does not have at all. Also, I found this out while I was like watching this. I'm like, whatever happened to like the guy that played junior? Like, is he in jail? And it turns out like he never really acted after these movies. And he's, he went on to like have a, a career in tech. And I found like his Facebook and his LinkedIn. I don't know if I'm obsessed or not. <laughs> but yeah, he just seems like this like really down to earth, like normal dude. And he has like a big red beard, long hair. Looks like he listens to like metal a little bit and just hangs out with all of his cats. And then um, he's like, yep. 30th anniversary of Problem Child. Ha ha ha. That was a weird movie. And then all these people are like commenting. You're like, oh, I didn't realize you did that when you were younger. Like, I guess like coworkers and friends and stuff. <laughs> like he's like this forgotten like child actor legend. But it was very, very funny. Um, so, yeah. Well, James, what how, how did you uh, like Problem Child 2? I don't know. It was gr- <laughs> It was. I mean... I don't know what you really say. It was like, I felt like I was 14 again. What? I mean, mm. yeah, it's, I laugh at shit and piss and vomit <laughs> and whatever. I mean, that's cool. I, I mean, I laughed, but it felt like a. it was like written or made by like 14-year-olds but starring nine-year-olds. Uh, but the actual humor was just like gross adolescent sick humor i I didn't i I found it funny like with all the vomiting on the thing like that was funny on like that rock and roller coaster thing whatever yeah no that was like yeah it's i don't want to say it's cheap laughs but like yeah i'm gonna laugh anytime there's a group of people that are just vomiting on each other i mean if it's that or stand by me or whatever that's just like an easy laugh I, i don't know I enjoyed it. I haven't seen the first one since I was probably in high school. So I think I like that one probably about the same. It's fine. (laughs) Harsh. Oh, harsh. I mean, yeah. I mean, we can talk some more about the poop this and the (laughs) piss that and the vomit over here and the that. I mean, I don't know. This is making me so glad that I've never actually done the Jackass episode I wanted to do where we watched all the Jackass movies because that would make me so happy. But I feel like it would be the exact word for word (laughs) review you just gave this one. (laughs) All the piss and the shit. I don't know. But I still like, I don't know. I didn't hate it. I laughed. Like I had a good time watching it. I, you know. I'm not going to, like, give it any awards. It's, it's so funny because, like, you gave this, like, you know, really, like, from the heart, like, review of, like, you know, Toy Story 3. And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, whatever. It was boring. I love Problem Child 2. And Chase yeah. is like, yeah, it's full of piss and shit. Like, <laughs> I guess that, that's, like, the thing with this podcast is, like, I can go on for 20 minutes about Toy Story 3 that really hit me in the heart about losing my adolescence and 
Brittany can go on for 20 minutes about Problem Child and the giant steaming pile of shit um, and how funny it was. And then here we are. I mean, so you get your yin and your yang. Um, so, yeah, all good. <laughs> oh, my God, my face hurts. And that leads us into Magic Mike. Yeah, can we please talk about Magic Mike? Like, I'm, I know we talked about the roaches. We talked about... The big pile of poop. Yeah, the guy drank the piss. The guy drank the piss. <laughs> or when the teacher got his ass exploded. Okay, there's that. I, I did like one of my favorite lines in the movie is when the twin girl said, like, we have a wholesaler. Like, I don't know. I thought that was funny. Um, yeah, I, I feel like we touched on. Uh, are there any more scatological <laughs> things that we need to discuss? <laughs> I mean, maybe Lawanda's like fake nose job or that man's like, when I wake up, I'm going to have the biggest nose in the world. I love that scene. That was another scene in the movie. I I think (laughs) the larger point might just be if you have children and you love John Waters, but you can't quite show them pink flamingos yet. Uh, maybe try Problem Child too. It's a Pink Flamingos primer for sure. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's why. Like when I watched Pink Flamingos, I was like, "Oh, this isn't as gross as everyone says it is." <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> I'd rather eat a turd. Um, anyway, <laughs> one more movie, very quickly. I don't need to do a plot synopsis for this because there isn't much of a plot. I wanted to talk about Magic Mike XXL. Mostly because it is something that James and I have sort of like gone back and forth on several times since 2015 when it came out. And it's a movie that I think about a lot, even though I don't really ever have any desire to rewatch the first one. I was working in a movie theater when the first Magic Mike came out and it was wild. The amount of just droves of adult women who came in to watch that movie and you could hear them shrieking in the movie theater. And like (laughs) you would go in after it and it was just like pandemonium, like popcorn everywhere. Like it was a movie that like electrified people. Mm -hmm. And I watched it later, a few years later. And the first magic Mike is this like existential, like melancholy movie. Yeah. It's about like the financial crisis And there are flashes of sexy escapism where they have the strip routines, but it's very like tongue in cheek, almost ironic humor about like, you know, sex as an escape from just how fucking sad life is, especially when you don't have enough money to like pay your way in the world. And then I saw the second one in the theater and it's just pure escapism, kind of like it's the Gremlins 2 of the Magic Mike uh, (laughs) universe (laughs) where... The plot, I, I could describe it mostly just as a boy band road trip. Like if like NSYNC had been touring for like 30 years and they were going to like go out one more time. Or I guess New Kids on the Block actually has been doing that. So it's probably the better corollary. So like New Kids on the Block's final tour across America in a tour bus. Except instead of performing pop songs, they strip. And there's a bunch of like fun, really sexy strip routines um, across the East Coast going up from... I think from Florida up to Georgia or one of the Carolinas maybe. And along the way, there's just a bunch of road trip slapstick gags and a bunch of like himbos getting along and being friends. And uh, 
really it's just that like it, it's like a hangout movie yeah. in a tour bus it's a lot of fun there's like no seriousness to it there's a love like kind of like a love story with like amber heard but it's not like you don't i don't know i didn't feel very invested in it nor care about it i just like was having fun with like the himbo crew you know well with the the amber heard love i don't i would don't, wouldn't even call it a love story it's just kind of like an an attttraction fling yeah it's like thing, oh huh? i found someone that i might want to date like it doesn't <laughs> yeah. end on like oh we're in love we're gonna get married it's just kind of like oh yeah you're cool like we should hang out which i kind of dug that that was the central romance and it seems kind of true to like a stripper i feel like he was just trying to make her like smile which is pretty much all they were doing with every woman in the movie it's just she was a little harder to right. get out of her shell they just want to make women happy <laughs> I, I do think what like works in this movie's favor, even though it doesn't have a plot really is like, there's extremely memorable like episodes on this road trip. So, you know, they go to visit his former boss in this like all black club. That scene is like really great. Is that like Michael Strahan? Segment? Oh God. Yeah. It's my favorite. And then, you know, they go to visit the older women who they're flirting with and like that scene is great and the final you know at the competition that scene is great so like you get all these big 20 minute episodes and they're just kind of working their way from one episode to the next and i think that that structure would totally fall flat if it wasn't for the fact that every one of those scenes works incredibly well and they're incredibly entertaining yeah you know personally like some of the stuff in between i was just kind of like all right when are we getting to the next big thing where they're going to strip or some crazy shit's going to happen and then we got there the crazy shit happened it was super fun and then okay we're on to the next one but it builds up like i remember just like watching this in theaters for the first time with like my best friend and i just remember like one of those moments would happen, like you were saying, James, like one of those like little like side kind of show scene type things, one of their pit stops on their journey. And I'm like, oh, my God, like I'm shook. I can't believe that just happened. And it would just progressively get funnier and more f just like more like exciting. And then like you finally make it to like, you know, like it feels like you're fighting like the final boss. <laughs> Yeah. in a video game when they make it to like that expo and i just remember screaming like in the theater with like i don't know like 30 uh, middle-aged women that were surrounding me and it was just yeah it the seems best like that's time. what people wanted out of the first one right like that's exactly what people wanted to do in that screening the, in the first movie which I, I saw it in theaters too like i remember like the fun parts were like when he would dance when he did the pony thing or when matthew mcconaughey would like dry hump in the mirror that's what we wanted and then there was like all this boring crap in the middle like i don't care about the kid i don't care about your friendship <laughs> so talking about it in regards to like sequels what i think's interesting about that dynamic like it almost seems like flipped where the first Magic Mike, to me, should have been what XXL is. And then it yeah. would have been interesting at the sequel where people are expecting another fun road trip and then it gets super dark and you see the like underside oh. 
of the stripper culture, but it's so odd that it starts dark and melancholic and then you get all the fun stuff in the sequel. Like something feels wrong. It feels like they were listening to feedback and they were like, okay, like here's what made the first one. Here's what people liked in the first one. Let's just blow that up and just make that the second movie. (laughs) It's kind of like, it, it feels like it was made for the fans. If that makes sense. Yeah, it is like fan service in that way. Mm-hmm. From what I could tell, Soderbergh was not interested in making a sequel, but the cast and like the production crew had a lot of fun with the first movie and they wanted to do something else with it. And this guy who usually is Soderbergh's like assistant director was like really interested in doing the project. So he just kind of handed it over to him. So, like, the second one's kind of like a family affair where it's, like, people hanging out and having fun and being good buds. And you feel it, too. I love that. And then Soderbergh, you know, he's someone... I feel like I've watched so much more of his movies since these two movies came out, like, almost a decade ago now. Or at least the first one almost a a decade ago. I've come to be impressed by him as, like, a tinkerer. Like, he loves to play with toys and, like, just have fun behind the camera, just fucking around with, like, movies as like a game almost. And in this one, he is the cinematographer for the film. And I think that adds a lot to what's going on here. Like the movie looks so fucking good. That Atlanta strip scene, all the neon lighting in that. Oh, it's great. That final 20 minute um, boy band showcase where they each like show off their own individual personalities, especially when it turns into a nine inch nails um, S and M show. Oh my god, that's that's where I was like screaming the loudest in the theater because <laughs> you don't expect it. <laughs> Some of the best looking images to hit the big screen in the past decade. Um, oh yeah, and it's in this like stripper movie. I really loved at that final scene though. Like, um, is it Kevin Nash? Oh yeah, when he just kind portrait. of paints paints his portrait. I thought that was so so beautiful. Like that whole moment. I mean, I think there is any sort of like plot or like arc to the movie it is that that they are like hey i never wanted to be a fireman or a policeman like i want to be an artist or i want to open my yogurt shop it's basically like they like accept who they actually are as people and that like comes out in their art you know in their male entertaining so doesn't it feel like the wizard of oz in a way it's like they're all like (laughs) you know what i mean like i only had a brain (laughs) if i (laughs) it's like they're like oh like if i could only paint or if i could only open up if i could only find a vagina that could fit my giant accommodating my giant dick (laughs) yeah like and it's like they all find what they're looking for (laughs) i gotta say too just talking about big dick richie He's the best. Well, he is the best. I love him. What I love is that the movie is in love with him. Like so much of the road trip is about him and like his desire. Like people are kind of humoring him by going on the road trip. And the movie's about how sexy he is. And the thing I love most about it, and especially watching both of these movies back to back, how many movies can you say are like mainstream money-making films that are like about sex? Not a lot. Not a lot recently. Like, it's basically this and Fifty Shades, and that's about it. Yeah. And this movie is not Fifty Shades in that it is fun and exuberant, and it's just about how sexy Big Dick Richie is. I I think, too, like, I like the sex positivity, and another thing I like, too, is, like, the drug 
positivity. Yeah, like none of it feels gross. You know how sometimes movies like this could get, they feel a little icky. Like, Or it feels like they're trying to tell me a message about drugs are bad or good. Like, Yeah, like stripping ruined my life and drugs are bad. Yeah, That was the problem with the first one. Like, oh, look at the dark side, the dark underbelly of drug use and the stripper world. And like this one, when they take ecstasy and they're like, like they're very good acting. Like that's what people look like when they're on ecstasy. But like they're having a great (laughs) fucking time. And there's no like real judgment. Like, yeah, there's the come down scene but like mm-hmm. it just felt like honest like yeah this is why people take drugs because it's kind of fun and like <laughs> that's why they're doing it and they have sex because sex like i don't know it feels good and it's pleasurable and we can be honest about that and i like too that the sex thing works particularly well in the scene with like the uh middle-aged women that they go to the mansion in the middle of georgia to go see mm-hmm. and that's like calling back specifically to Soderbergh's beginnings with like sex lies and videotape because you have Andy McDowell like kind of holding court in that scene. Mm-hmm. That is a huge difference between the like darkness and like the sexual urge of sex lies and videotape where it's like kind of a shameful thing where in this film specifically it's about pulling her out of her like shame and her squeamishness and it's about like celebrating her sexuality. It, it just feels all very deliberate. Well and also when the other guy the one that's like into the yoga and meditation you know when he like holds the one woman and just tells her like i can see there's like a light inside of you and i don't know that was beautiful like people need to hear that stuff and you know it was just like these strippers that were helping these women kind of get out of their shells yeah what a nice group of boys (laughs) but to go back to the overall topic of the podcast like I would say that Magic Mike is definitely the more enjoyable film. I think it depends on taste, like if you consider it the better of the two. To me, to, to my mind, like they're both good. Like I prefer the sequel, but I don't think the original is bad by any stretch. It's very good. It's just like not quite the take on the story that I think is an interesting one, but like they both tackle it competently you know what i mean like I, I don't think that this sequel is inherently better i i think it is just a matter of taste it's hard to go back to the first one like i, oh, I just very had hard. a desire to rewatch it knowing that i could get everything i want out of it without all the work like the first one has like more emotional work that you have to do to engage with it and the second one is just pure candy but I agree. I, I rewatched the first one and I actually have like a greater appreciation for it this time around than I did the first time I watched it. I don't think it looks as good as the second one. Although like color correction, it's all like tinted, like piss yellow. I don't know what he was doing there, <laughs> but like all the club scenes are like these really beautiful, like cool colors, but all the exteriors are this like ugly, like it looks like if you had, if you smoked inside and like, you know, your white walls, like, turn that, like, sticky yellow mm, color. I love that. That's how that movie's tinted. God, I could smell it, too. That's uh, disgusting. Mm-mm. It's like the cat's out of the bag with it. it I, I guess Gremlins 2 is a pretty good comparison where it's like, why would I watch the first Gremlins? I get every possible flavor of Gremlin <laughs> in the second one. Right. It's like all, like, what you're w- waiting for, those, like, little pops of excitement. You just get it, like, full-fledged. And I think, like... 
the problem or like I, I think a challenge of those like the Magic Mike and the Gremlins too is like you can't make a Gremlins three. It would literally be impossible. Where do you take that story? <laughs> I mean, the Gremlin Godzilla. Okay, the Gremlin Godzilla. All right. But you know what I'm saying? Like when you've ratcheted it up that much and it's that much pleasure and that much candy, I don't think you can surpass. Like it would be so challenging to do a third one of that. Or like even Magic Mike XXXL, whatever. I don't know where you go from there. Whereas if you have like, a Toy Story, just saying, where it's like a narrative <laughs> where you grow these characters over time and it's like the plot progresses, you can kind of go other places. But when it's just like balls to the wall, let's take this nugget of an idea and just blow it up, I think it's hard to keep blowing it up. At some point, you reach a limit. You're hitting on what I love about those two movies, though. It's like... In my perfect world, the first movie would go that hard to the point where a sequel would be impossible. Like, I want that maximalism at all times in, like, every movie I watch. I, I kind of agree, but what I like sequels to do is, like, like I was saying with the Magic Mike, like, maybe flip it, and the second one should subvert expectations. We're expecting this kind of movie, and oh, we've gotten something much stranger or weirder, darker, that sort of thing. When it goes from something dark to something super enjoyable, poppy, like you said, the cat's out of the bag now. Yeah. You've gone the nuclear option. There's nothing left. Yeah. <laughs> You've completely leveled the playing Which is field. cool. We're, you know, I again, I love Gremlins and Magic Mike. I think it's just a different take on like a great sequel yeah toy story is a little more character driven um and like actually following the plot or following the like themes to um their sort of like logical conclusion and i think with problem child it's like just <laughs> i i think it is in the same i would put it in the same wheelhouse as like a gremlins 2 where you took something that was more base from what i remember it was like i think like you touched on brain the first one seemed more about like written jokes written lines of dialogue and the second one is more about the spectacle of poop and vomit and all this stuff i think that one's like actual proof of what you're saying where like the first one is already like so dialed to 11 and so loud and obnoxious that the only way the second one could best it in any way is to just completely <laughs> dedicate itself to gigantic piles of shit mm. and puke. <laughs> There's like nowhere else for it to go. Well, the, well, Brittany, there was a problem child three, right? Yeah, but it didn't have like the OG junior and the kid was horrific. It's free on like IMDb, that app or something like that. And I was trying to watch it and I couldn't get past like the first five minutes oh boy okay i think it went straight to television as well it was an um, animated series too yeah i will say the uh writers of problem child and problem child 2 james you'll, you'll be interested in this uh went on to write ed wood and dolomite is my name wow which is uh very um confusing yeah that 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 just hurt my brain a little bit that does not compute I think like what that third one did and why I found it so boring is it wasn't, I don't know how to say it, like for a kid's movie, both of them, one and two, they kind of really pushed the envelope where it was like, shit, is this for kids? Like, 
the other one was a little too tame and mild. Like it was trying to pull it back to being like a G movie almost. Yeah, they should have just can't gone do full it. like no. hard R. Like you yeah. just go hard R. That's the only way. <laughs> yeah, you've already made pink flamingos for kids. Yeah. You cannot go back. And I'm like, if I don't see a pile of dog crap or someone puking on someone in the first five minutes, then you don't have me. Like I know where I can get what I need. But you say that about every movie. I do. I'm a garbage <laughs> woman. Yeah. I just it's like that's that's the drug that I need in film. And if you can't give it to me, then I'll, I know where to go. And it's problem child too. Well, next week on this show, we are going to watch a children's film, but it will not have any piss, puke, shit, or um, any other uh, bodily fluid you could think of. What's the point? (laughs) What's the point? Yeah, good question. Yeah. (laughs) We're going to watch The Secret of Rowan Inish. Oh, about the Selkie? Yeah. It's a really like tender little fantasy film, much more um, grounded. I do like that. Unfortunately, movie. does not have its own over-the-top sequel where the Selkies like take over the world or anything. Uh, but <laughs> never too late. And in the meantime, uh, check out Swampflex.com. We write movie reviews most days of the week. We post a new podcast every week. And I've been trying to say this at the end of the episodes. Now we also have a email account, Swampflex at Gmail. If you have any feedback on any of these films or anything you want to recommend us talk about. Or if you just want to really tell us how funny you thought that puke scene was in Problem Child 2, yeah. uh, send us an email and we'd love to talk to you. Yeah, there have to be others out there. Please make contact. Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 <laughs>